Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, if you knew that you were going to be reincarnated, and you were going to be reincarnated as a plant, what plant would you choose? Rhododendron. Yeah, why? Mm-hmm. Beautiful blooms, nice thick leaves. It's so, you know, it's hardy, ornamental, and yet it has substance. Describe this one to me. What, what does it look like? Uh, you know, I mean, it. sort of a plant with nice, glossy green leaves. Okay. Sort of, you know, the spade-shaped, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, as I say, beautiful pink blooms or red or I don't know. It's something that I look out, uh, you know, in, from my window a lot. Okay. Which is why it came to mind so quickly. And you? Um, I would I would go with moss. Some some moss. some form of moss. Ah, uh, so gothic. That's so you. It's not really gothic. It, the, like I think moss is a uh, moss is a very happy type of a plant. I mean, oh, if I was yeah. going to go with like yeah. a goth plant, uh, uh-huh. I don't know. I can't think of a goth. Plants aren't very goth for the most part. Actually, there are goth gardens. They're beautiful. I'm not kidding. Really? They're these deep purples. Um, yeah, you you should go online and look up goth gardens. Okay, so they're just like a lot of dark purple plants and mm-hmm. things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, moss, I, th- I think of moss as rich and vibrant, mm-hmm. growing in the depths of woods where never a goth has tread. So, um, <laughs> you know, and just living peacefully far from everything and just, you know, soft and moist. Uh, that's, well, that's the life I would choose. Well, there's something aesthetic about it, I will say that, monk-like about moss. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. No, just uh, try, just living there, hanging out, moss. Yeah, you know, for taking it easy in the next life uh, as a plant. But that's one of the things we're really going to discuss in our podcast today. Plants really have this stereotype. It's easy to, to dismiss plants as being this passive, not even really an organism. You just think of, like, plants as stuff that grows elsewhere in the world that I have to cut back in order to uh, see across my lawn, mm-hmm. that has to be maintained uh, to a certain degree, but otherwise isn't really a player on the planet. Yeah, I mean, especially when you think about um, invasive types of plants like kudzu in the mm-hmm. south, when it was introduced, just took over everything. So if you're driving along the highway, you'll see kudzu-covered buildings. It's just pretty monstrous looking. And so you look at it more like, oh, man, that's such a pest. I got I need to maintain this. Yeah, but, but even then we just think of it as this amorphous force that's sort of coming at us. It's, it's, right. it's easy to dismiss it and not think of it as something that is actually a highly sensitive bunch of organisms. Well, I mean, are, yeah, yeah. There's a secret life to plants. Yeah, and they're actively competing for environmental resources, both above the ground and below the ground. Mm-hmm. They're assessing their surroundings and they're estimating how much energy they need to expend. Granted, all of this is taking place at a much slower pace than uh, with us animals. But it's happening. And one of the key things that we're going to look at today is communication. Yep, specifically whether or not plants actually have a language in the form of chemical compounds. Language what, you say? But wait until you hear some of the stuff that we're about to lay on you. We're specifically talking about chemical communication. You see this in between plants, so inside plants, but also between other plants. In fact, there are more than 20 different groups of molecules related to communication in plants that we've Identified. And those are groups. So, for instance, there are up to 100,000 different substances that are actively used uh, for communication in the root zone of, of plants alone. Mm-hmm. You have things like mechanical contact that are responsible for setting off some of this communication. For instance, you'll have a plant that reacts to an animal that's trying to eat it. Mm-hmm. Or something touches it and discards pollen so that whatever's touching it will carry that pollen elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Or it is growing in such a way as to intersect with uh, a beam of sunlight that's coming in through the canopy above. And you see these interactions between plants and other plants, mm-hmm. between plants.
plants in other species, other families, even whole other kingdoms. And most of these are symbiotic or parasitic relationships, but but they exist. They're not, uh, again, they are not passive members of the environment. They are active members of the environment. Yeah, and let's put a little bit of rubber to the road and, and give you an example of this. Okay, that fresh-cut smell of grass, mm-hmm. okay, that you smell on a Saturday morning that reminds you of summer and whatever else summer reminds you of, that actually is a very intentional smell, and it is a uh, cry of anguish. Yeah. Yeah, so the blades have cut that grass. Well, we're, we're anthropomorphizing a lot of it, but, yeah. but A lot of it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is what happens, actually. There's something called green leaf volatiles, and this is released when plants suffer tissue damage. And as you say, it can signal to plants of the same or different species or even insects. Yeah, so these are chemical signal substances, and they are really the oldest form of language. You see them uh, used by microbes, fungi, animals, and plants. And leaves are always emitting these volatiles in small doses. But it's when those parasitic insects move in that you see great quantities emitted. So some of these, definitely, they actually attack a parasite Mm -hmm. by producing substances that disagree with them. Mm -hmm. Or they're indirectly attracting other insects that are natural enemies of the parasites. So you can think of... Think of it on on one level, it's like an immune system that we have, where something's messing with it, it's going to release things to fight it. But then it's also not afraid to send out that alarm signal and say, hey, something bad going down here, like somebody screaming in a dark alley to say, hey, (laughs) I'm being attacked, send in the forces. Yeah, I think a really extreme example of this was what German scientists found when they were publishing their research in science. They studied wild tobacco planets, and they witnessed the hornworm caterpillars. Wild tobacco planets? Oh, did I say that? I'm not making fun because I accidentally wrote planets yesterday. Yeah, when I, wrote I know. The, the you meant plants. Yeah, but I like the idea of a wild tobacco plant. Okay, I do too. Well, I don't know for everybody's health. We'll see about that. <laughs> but um, wild tobacco plants were actually being attacked by hornworm caterpillars, and what they found was that the caterpillars' saliva caused a chemical change in the GLV compounds the plants produced, and it's that the interaction of the saliva with the chemical compounds that then trans it out, hey, hey guys, guess what? We're being attacked by delicious, juicy, hornworm <laughs> caterpillars. Come and, and get them. And those GLVs, again, are green leaf volatiles, mm-hmm. which are those chemicals we were talking about earlier. And I think it's also fun to point out that the name for these caterpillars, Manduca Sexta. It sounds like a DJ. Specifically like a Mexico City DJ somehow. Manduca yeah. Sexta. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Well, now we have the soundtrack yeah. to this bit. What's interesting about this is that, of course, we, we look at this as human beings and say, how can we harness this knowledge for our own use? And scientists think that we may be able to induce the same sort of change via genetic engineering, which might protect plants against pests without encouraging the resistance that pests develop in response to pesticides. Okay, so that we may be able to do the same sort of distress call mm-hmm. to protect our crops and whatnot. Um, but more interesting, though is the question of whether or not plants have this rudimentary form of language. Lima beans are another interesting example. Did you run across this one? No. So lima beans, they're attacked by red mites. First, they change their scent to make them unattractive to the mites. Mm -hmm. Then the plants emit scents that are perceived by other plants, and they do the same thing. So all the other lima bean plants in the area start making themselves unattractive to these mites before they can even move in. And then some of the emitted substances have an added effect that they bring in other mites that will eat the red mites. So they're kind of unleashing two volatile weapons on these parasites. They're saying, hey, you don't like me after all. See, I smell gross. And they're saying, <laughs> oh, by the way, we're inviting some friends over to eat you. So it's a two-tiered defense system they have going on there. 
Yeah, I mean, it's pretty harsh. And there have been people who have actually been using this strategy. It's called push-pull strategy to put uh, certain kinds of plants around their crops Mm -hmm. to either attract something that they know is going to be eaten that may have eaten their crop or to repel them, as you just uh, talked about, or or actually, in that instance, is taking both repel and the attracting. But um, there's another really interesting thing that came up in an io9 article, and it's called Plants Can Think and Perform Computations, Say Scientists. Really? Oh, well, there you go. Let's define computations. Well, I will. I will. Okay. Um, but it is predicated on what you brought up, this idea that uh, plants are trying to protect themselves and immunize themselves against uh, pathogens, right, mm-hmm. in this case. There are a group of researchers who believe they've found the plant equivalent of the nervous system, which functions by translating light into chemical reactions and remembering those reactions over time. So what they're saying is that plants need to analyze and remember different wavelengths of light in order to prepare for seasonal variations in pests and pathogens. And Professor Karpinski from the University of Leeds says, every day or week of the season has a characteristic light quality. So the plants perform a sort of biological light computation, there you go, using information contained in the light to immunize themselves against diseases that are prevalent during that season. I think that is fascinating. And we are talking about that, taking that that quality of light, because we we talked about this last week, about how white light is composed of different wavelengths. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this varies depending on what that season is. Yeah, and and again, it just drives home how plants are not this passive member of the environment. They are active members that are computing things, that are figuring things out and fighting off attackers. It's true. Competing for resources. I suppose we should take a quick break. We should. And when we get back, we're going to talk about a plant that has a stench of a big, glorious hunk of rotting meat. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is a favorite of everyone's. So hang in there. We'll be right back. We have returned. And now it is time to discuss the Titan Aram. On the street, it also goes by, well, in Indonesia, Bunga Bankai, which translates into corpse flower, and its Latin name is actually Amorpho Thallus Titanium. And uh, just in case you picked up that phallus part in there, yes, there is a, a bit of a penis reference in here. That is Latin for giant misshapen penis. Yes, it is. Because if you look up a picture of the planet, it does it looks like a giant grotesque phallus. So yeah, well, actually, it's it's quite. I mean, this is a weird thing to follow that. It's actually stunning. It's kind of beautiful in a way. uh, Because what we're talking about is a plant that grows to eight feet tall. And it's wrapped in these chartreuse-colored leaves. And when it blooms, the leaves unfurl. And you can see the interior of the leaves. And they look kind of maroony and satin ball gown looking. And in the middle is that pale yellow that was called the spadix that mm-hmm. rises up. This is the big misshapen penis that we're talking about. It's also interesting that the titum arum is not a flower, technically. It's what we call an inflorescence, which is a, a group of flowers clustered mm-hmm. around a, a central fleshy column, like you said. And, and I, f- I found this interesting as well. There's a little bit of mimicry that goes on in this particular plant because that uh, its stalk is very fleshy. It's really not doesn't have a lot of substance to mm-hmm. it. So what it does is it mimics lichen growing on the, that shaft so that it looks rugged and, and harder than it actually is to keep things from plowing into it. 
Right. Imagine this guy, this Italian botanist, Eduardo Beccari, in 1878, stumbling upon this corpse flower. <laughs> he was actually trekking through the rainforest of Sumatra, where these are indigenous. And at first he thought that there was a dead monkey, and that was the source of the stench. But he saw this magnificent eight-foot-tall flower, and the closer he got, the more he realized that this is what smelled, people say sometimes, of rotting garbage, rotting meat, uh, feces. Rotting fish with burnt sugar was one description that I ran across. Burnt sugar, okay. Yeah. And so he, he he discovered this thing, and he's like, they got to have this in England. I'm gonna, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they need this in the UK. I'm going to send this back to the Royal Botanic Gardens. And he did, and they, they started cultivating it because it's absurd. It, it is <laughs> absurd. That's a really good word for it, but also pretty wonderful and awful. So let's talk about why it smells and why it is not just smells, but it's incredibly pungent. Well, it, it needs pollinators in mm-hmm. the same way that you have sweet-smelling flowers that are attracting bees and, and whatnot to help spread their pollen. This particular plant wants to achieve the same goal, but it's going to find a slightly different way of doing it. You know, there's a lot of competition for all those bees and wasps and butterflies, but old Titan here has a different game in mind. It's going to reach out to the carrion beetles and the flesh flies, mm-hmm. the uh, these insects that love nothing more than the scent of a rotten monkey in the in the jungle. Yeah, and it's got to go big or go home because it's such a large plant and it can take a year or more for that plant to store enough energy to bloom. In fact, it, when it's been cultivated at botanical gardens, sometimes it takes six to seven years to bloom. Yeah, you mentioned all the energy it has to use. One of the reasons is that it has to heat itself up in order to really uh, get that perfume cranking properly. Yeah, there's this idea that it is mimicking almost like a human body, flesh, Fahrenheit of 98.6, yeah, the, and the, making itself more attractive. Yeah, specifically the tip of the spadix is about human body temperature when it's really in full bloom. Yeah, and so now think about that. It's really hot. It's presenting itself as a hot hunk of meat high up in the air, and it's telegraphing that for up to a half mile. So all these carrion eaters and flesh flies, they come in, they're attracted to it, they want to they consume it, they want to lay their eggs there, they end up inadvertently carrying the pollen out and spreading it, mm-hmm. uh, which is the whole goal here. You had mentioned this, the carrion flies, uh, dung beetles, the sort of plant that this actually belongs to, or excuse me, I should say that the species that it belongs to is a category of carrion flowers, ears are pricking up the word carrion, which is course is referring to a carcass right and not only do carrion flowers smell like rotting meat they also tend to look the part for instance the stapelia asterius flower is coated with fine hairs that make the flower resemble moldy meat it's really deceptive in in its own way i mean it's it's brilliant and it is uh, again it's a kind of language i mean Mm -hmm. what is it saying come over and come over here and eat my fleshy stock, which is not flesh. Yeah, in, in a way, they're, like if you imagine a dinner party, and you have all these boisterous individuals having a conversation, and those are those are the animals, you know, and they're loudly discussing this, that, and the other. But then you have these smaller voices that are perking up. They're not saying much, and they're speaking at a much lower voice, but in their own way, they're really dictating the entire conversation, and that's what's so fascinating about the odorous language of plants. Yeah, so think about that next time you step on grass, whether or not you're doing some tissue damage there and there's a cry out for help yeah or not you don't have to think about that 
There was an amusing track from the band Tool years and years ago on the album Sober, which I know we have a few Tool listeners that are listeners to this podcast. And uh, it started off with this kind of skit where it's like a preacher preaching to a congregation, and he's revealing that he has had this revelation that the, the carrots have souls and have a uh, consciousness, and that whenever we're harvesting carrots, it's a, like a holocaust of carrots. I remember finding that uh, particularly amusing back in the day, but it's not too far off the mark. I mean, it's not that difficult to anthropomorphize uh, all these plants when you start looking at just how involved they really are and how active they are in the environment. That doesn't mean that we're going to stop stepping on grass, right? But it does give us an insight or change our perspective a little bit about communication, like what communication is and what Mm -hmm. language is. And we so often think that it has to do with our own mother tongue, but obviously there are all these things going on behind the scenes that yeah. we don't get a glimpse into. Yeah, usually. language itself—that's that's new stuff. That's uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's yeah. a trend that not everyone's even picking up on. That's true. Yeah. I'm actually putting together a slideshow of the corpse flower, a old nice. titan. Yeah. So be on the lookout for that. We'll post it on Facebook, but you can also put it in the search bar of HowStuffWorks.com, and you can get a better look at what this thing looks like. Excellent. Yeah, that should be awesome. Do check it out. See what this gigantic mutated phallus is all about and how it's actually resembling uh, rotten meat a little. Indeed. All right. Well, let's call over the robot and see what kind of listener mail we have. <laughs> Heard from a listener by the name of Zach. Zach writes in and says, Hi, everyone. After you guys mentioned that we have multiple behavior-altering parasites in us, what would it be like if you could uh, get a person that was completely devoid of not just behavior-altering parasites, but anything that altered their behavior? Would they still be them? At some point, we might not be so much individual, but more of a composite of parasites. Maybe to be human, you need to be this host, not one single organism. The Toxo episode was great and really got me thinking, I think it's one of your best episodes. Even if it creeps me out thinking about these parasites. Zach. Well, indeed, it is one of those topics that really turns what it is to be human on its head and makes you reanalyze exactly uh, what the human experience is all about. Well, I think that Zach's point is awesome, too, that is there any sort of pure example of non-infested people running around, right? Like how this is very much, and we talked about this in terms of bacteria, too, how this very much informs the way that we perceive the world. Like, you know, the gut in our bacteria we know affects our, our mental state. So, bravo, Zach. All right, here's a little listener mail from Anne, and she's responding to our recent Seven Deadly Sins episode on lust. She says, Hi, Julian Robert. You guys do a great job demystifying many interesting and delicate topics for listeners of all ages in a really matter-of-fact way. Love the Wrath podcast. So why do you have such a problem with the proper words for genitalia? Penis is not a four-letter word, nor is vagina, especially for younger listeners. Just using those words instead of a euphemism makes it a less scary slash titillating subject. Frankly, if you can't use clear language, maybe you shouldn't be covering the topic. The more you couch information using expressions like Franken-beans, the more you make it a forbidden area. As an adult with lots of relatives and friends with growing and mostly now uh, adolescent kids, it's obvious that those parents who use and always have used direct terminology also have the most open discussions about sex, sexual health, and birth control with their kids. Hope this isn't harsh. This has been irking me, and I really do love the podcast. Thanks, Anne. Well, I really appreciate that feedback, actually, because I think that it's important to note that obviously I don't have a problem saying penis or misshapen penis. Um, but in the context of that podcast that we did, because it was about virtual sex, we were trying to be really careful about the language. Mainly that's because the powers that be don't necessarily want us describing graphic acts. Mm-hmm. When I say Frankenbeans, A, I like that. B, I'm also trying to tamp down a little bit of the more of the graphic aspect. So that's just to make sure that that podcast gets delivered to your ears and we don't have any 
problems of it getting red flagged. But to your point, Ann, I think that you're absolutely right about being forthright when using correct genitalia names. I kind of actually rue the day that I told my three-year-old about the, the word vulva because she uses it a lot. But yeah, I think that it's important to demystify that as well. But there was actually a, re- a reason why we tried to go gentle on the language for that podcast. And here's one from listener Alex. Uh, Alex says, Hi, I just heard your podcast Godzilla vs. Kong vs. Barbie. And as a Godzilla fan who has seen all 28 films, I feel obligated to add some details and correct some stuff. First of all, I have to say that you forgot some detail to Godzilla's history. After he became a hero-like character in the 60s and 70s, he returned to his darker roots back in the 80s and 90s and became an anti-hero. Next, you guys said that Godzilla's veins would have to be as strong as steel. That's not that improbable in the Godzilla universe, considering how durable he is. You also mentioned that his body is 200 meters long. Godzilla, at his largest, is 100 meters tall while standing. However, he might be 200 meters if he is laying down and you include his tail. This is excusable because you got his mass of 60,000 tons right. Finally, I have to say that it is mentioned in movies that Godzilla's heart is said to act like a nuclear reactor, meaning that Godzilla is powered by nuclear power. Since this would generate more power than uh, cellular respiration, his blood would not have to circulate as much because his cells would be powered longer with nuclear power than with cellular respiration. This means that his blood pressure would not have to be as high. Sorry for making you read through my ranting. Anyways, thanks for doing a podcast on my favorite giant monster. Bye. Well, there you go. No, I mean that's that's awesome. I no, know. it's impressive. Yeah, I mean certainly he's seen all twenty-eight films, so he has a he does have a deeper understanding of the fictional physics and biology of Godzilla. And certainly having an atomic heart would change things, but doesn't mean your heart would be more uh, susceptible to being broken. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So it's tough being a giant monster in this world. So, if you would like to reach out to us, if you would like to share something with us, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. On Facebook, you can just search for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And on Twitter, uh, our handle happens to be Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.